All right, so um, last week we were in the first six verses of Mark chapter 6, and Jesus uh, went to Nazareth, his hometown, for the last time. He was really more or less unwelcome there because of unbelief, unbelief. Um, you could say rejection, but it was uh, the unbelief of the people that rejected Christ, and so he left that city very quickly without anybody really getting saved except for a few sick people who came to him and he healed them, it says there. But it was really ma a matter of unbelief. Very interesting time, very interesting p passage. If you missed it, you ought to take a look at it or listen to it because it, it speaks in a lot of ways where we are today in America. There's a lot of unbelief in America, too. So, uh, but Jesus didn't have a very good day that day, I don't think you could say, because of all the unbelief, but he had a big job ahead of him, and the question comes up, how would Jesus approach the job of reaching the world? How would you approach the job of reaching the world here? So today, we're going to read verses 7 through 13, and that will be our text for this morning. Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 13, short passage here. And he, that's Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. We'll stop right there. Now this is interesting text because it comes in here. We've heard something similar to that earlier on here. But really Jesus is now approaching the end of his real ministry in Galilee and the end of his one person ministry there. So uh, he's going to pass on the leadership to somebody. And leadership is a very important very important topic. When I was in the military, we, we studied leadership a little bit, and we were in seminary, we talked about it also. But what is leadership? It's knowing how to pass the work on to others. It's not pawning it off to them, but helping them pick up and take the load, really, here. That's really a good definition of what Jesus is doing right here. He's, he's passing the leadership on to others. The 12 now clearly are the 12, the 12. Uh, they came in three stages to Christ. If you kind of look back just a little bit in, um, in Mark chapter 1, they were, first of all, disciples. Andrew, it says there, heard about Jesus, and then he brought Simon and so forth. And so they heard about Jesus, and they came to, them, to him just kind of like seeking and trying to understand what was going on. And then they become really disciples of Christ there with many other people. In uh, later portions of Scripture, they're called that. And they left their homes, they left their businesses and so forth to follow Christ, and they followed him all around the Sea of Galilee area there for the most part. 
And then lastly, they, they were appointed as apostles. They went from disciples to apostles, sort of a, a better or higher rank in that sense. More committed, but in this case, an apostle was one who was sent with a mission and with the authority to carry out the mission, whereas a disciple was one who was just merely a learner for the most part. We all should be, as Christians, disciples. I don't believe any of us is apostle in the sense of the New Testament, but we do have a mission, nevertheless, uh, slightly different from theirs. So it says in Mark chapter 3, earlier on, that, that Jesus had gone up to the mountain, and I believe he spent some time in prayer there, and then it says he, he summoned those to him who were going to be his apostles there. And he appointed the twelve, which is mentioned here too, we'll see as we just touched on it a moment ago. And he sent them out to preach and to have authority, have authority. So they're a little different now than your average disciple, and there's just twelve of them. Keep in mind that Jesus' three-year ministry, pretty much that part of it that's in Galilee now is drawing to a conclusion. He's drawing to a conclusion. And up to now, Jesus had done all the teaching. He had done all the teaching everywhere he went. He went around the, um, the Galilee Basin, we would call it. He went up to Chorazin, Bethsaida. He was there at Capernaum. He went over to the uh, east side where the demoniac was and uh, cast the demons out there in Gadara. And so he, but he was the one who always did the teaching. The disciples were following along and they were listening and they were paying attention and they were trying to figure this all out. And, they, and Jesus wanted them to see firsthand how this would all work out. But he was the main teacher. You know, I always find it interesting sometimes when I go to different churches. Sometimes you go to a church and there's only one teacher there and one pastor and he does everything. He even runs the sound system back there. I've, I've seen that happen in churches. And I'm glad that's not me. But I, I do try to pass it on and maybe been known a little bit for delegating anything that comes my way. Um, but I try to delegate what needs to be delegated and take care of what I'm really gifted and best at taking care of. So really, this is the height of Christ's ministry as he now prepares to hand it over to the twelve. He's, he is now going to decrease in the sense that he's going to go to the cross. He knows this. They don't understand that or grasp it fully yet. So the question comes, how would one man reach the world. Well, when you look at how he planned to reach the world, you should be rather amazed when you look at it here. This is a divine plan, is what he's got set before us here. And the implications are massive for us as well, even though we may not be apostles. Our church is led by elders, which is the same office as pastor, same office as bishop, just different names for the same office. But um, there's more than one of us here. And it's a good thing, because when we started out, there was just one. And uh, it's a wonderful thing to have that, to spread across the shoulders of other godly men, the work that is before us. Well, let's take a look at this. Let's take a look at this, starting in verse 7, as we walk our way through this text and learn something about sending and applying it to our church at a special time in our church's history where we are moving into a new facility and so forth and working in that direction. So it says in verse 7 that he called the 12. He called them. I just want to draw to your attention as you look at that, that he called them and they didn't volunteer. He called them. They weren't the ones that planned it. They were the ones who came. 
calling always goes by the way before sending. He called them. They were appointed in a sense like that earlier. I believe that he knew, as God always does before the foundation of the world, who they would be. But he called them, and they were appointed in chapter 3 of Mark, if you remember in verse 14. It says he appointed there um, 12 so that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach, it says there. And so the word that is used there, it means to, it's translated as appointed, it means to, it means to make or to go without delay, without delay, it has that idea. So when they were appointed, they were appointed with a, a special mission that had some urgency to it. And that would be that of an apostle. You know, it's really, when you talk about Christ being the one who called them and sent them and so forth, it, it really reminds me of salvation itself because the scripture very clearly says when John 15, 16 says, Jesus speaking there, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't understand that. He chose us. We didn't choose him. Why didn't we choose him? Because we were dead in our sins and trespasses, Ephesians tells us. We're dead. You can't choose anybody if you're dead. But clearly Christ chose us, and in the mystery of providence and election and all those kinds of things, that's what it says, not just there, but in other places as well. This is John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go forth and bear fruit. Chose you out of the world. Salvation is the mystery. But we are all chosen in one sense for sure to be a disciples and for sure to carry out the Great Commission. But here he says he called them the twelve. The twelve. Now I just make the point that the definite article is before twelve. He doesn't, doesn't call them twelve, but the twelve. So this is a special group of twelve guys who are here. A special group that they were now called to carry out this mission. And when you look at the list, the list is not here in the Gospel of Mark, but in the other Gospels it gives the list. We've let, read it before, there's 12 guys, and their names are all listed in order there. And when you look at them, we're not going to look them up now, you can if you want to, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Acts, you'll find that list there. The first person on the list is always Simon, who's also called Peter, call him the rock there. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So that was John 1.41, and Jesus called him first, Simon. So there's, there's three groups of four people each in this list. There's a sign of organization there. So you have Simon, James, Peter, and John, and so forth there. But also in the next one is mentioned there. In the next group, it's Philip, who was a leader of two people there. And um, probably not Philip the Evangelist. He was uh, first a disciple of John the Baptist and first to have Jesus say to him, follow me. Sometimes it's hard to know too much about these figures, but in the first group of four, we know a lot. In the second group that's headed by Philip, we know less, but we do know that he was kind of a seeker. That was the characteristic of his life. And his name always appears first in that second group of four people. Then the last group of four people always begins with the name of James. He's the leader of group number 
three. He's also called James the Less, which may refer to his size or his height um, or his humility. We don't know exactly what that could mean, but it has a designation to set him apart from the others. Was he the brother of Jesus? It's not absolutely clear that he was. He may have been the half-brother of Christ, may have been the one who is called a pillar in the church. He, uh, he may have been the one who was martyred, but it's not absolutely certain. Whoever it was, we don't know much about him at all compared to the others. We could say in one sense, he was no superstar. But that's the people whom Jesus called. Simon, Philip, James, and those that followed under them. In the remaining three people in each of those groups, their names always appear in different orders, not necessarily one, two, three, four. It can be two, four, three, whatever, you know. But the first person in the list is always the same, Simon, Philip, or James. And while Simon Peter, or Peter as we call him, is the first person in the whole list, he's the leader. The last person in all of these lists is who? Judas. Isn't that interesting? And always with a comment about him and his defection there. These are the ones that Jesus, that Jesus called and appointed to change the world. A couple things to notice here. One is they were all men. Just an obvious thing. I mean, that is a no-brainer. These were all men. This a group of uh, 12 of them there. And um, they were men who obviously came to love the Lord. Doesn't mean that there's any problem with women, but there are no women apostles in the New Testament. Women and men are created and, uh, and are, have, are created and saved in the same way. Spiritually speaking, we are identical. But our roles in life are unique, and women have a very unique role in our current day with all the emphasis on uh, women's lib situations over the past 20 years. It has changed that a lot in some churches, and so you will find women pastors, but I will say to you, there were no women apostles, and by the way, Jesus himself was a man, and God the Father is pictured as a father. Those are interesting things. There's more we could say about that. We talked about it in our men's breakfast in a lively discussion last month. We're going to come back to that this month as well. So he sent them out in teams of two, and they would begin to send them out two by two. There's official sending going on here. Up to now they've been following, but now they're being sent out. The official sending of the 12 here. No more classroom stuff for them. Classroom stuff had been following Jesus around, you know, Capernaum over to uh, Decapolis and up to Bethsaida and those places up on the hill there. They've been following him around. That was really their classroom. Jesus was a peripatetic teacher. He, he taught as he walked. And they learned from him. But now it's their turn to go out. And they were to go out in twos as they started out. Now, why twos? Well, it's kind of obvious. Well, if they went out in twos, then they would support each other. They would encourage each other as they went about. That would be obvious there. Um, they would protect each other. And, and there was a, a value in coming back. If one person said one thing, the other could verify it if people didn't believe it. So there was a verification factor in all of this too. 
And I like the verse in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 4 9, says, Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Two are better than one. So Jesus starts out with sending them out two by two, and they are men, strong, fit, mostly fishermen, so forth. But it says he gave them authority there also over unclean spirits. Once again, authority means that they were given not only the place and the position of doing this, but the power to do it, the force, the mastery of the ministry that they would have, and it would be over unclean spirits. Now, I want you to notice that he starts out with unclean spirits and not healing here. He starts out with dealing with demons here, really. And so these guys were given some kind of authority over demons. Now, why is that? Probably because demons were, in, in essence, an entity to themselves. They were cognitive. They were spirit beings, whereas when you heal someone or a disease or a, a bug that's in somebody's body, if it's physical like that, it's, it's not the same. But demons could respond to him, and they were opposing him. And so we see the term unclean, morally corrupt spirits, that would be demons. These are the fallen angels that were with Satan early on in the scriptures. So when you say spirits, we're talking about demons. We're talking about fallen angels who are sealed, I believe, in their position never to change, but opposing the plan of God in Christ. But now they are given authority and they are, they are really called apostles here too. They're called apostles. And I just might mention what is an apostle because maybe you don't know, just to kind of give you a little definition of that. In the New Testament, apostle is someone who is personally called by Christ, for example, which we see right here very clearly. And then um, secondly, they walked with Christ. They were with him while on earth at some point or another. And then thirdly, they had authority, which is mentioned right here, which is why I wanted to bring this up. They had unique authority to do miracles and to deal with even the most difficult things of all, the unclean, demonic spirit world of this age, because Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's this prince that is even with us now, although in some places in the world it's much more obvious. So they had authority to deal with that apostolic authority, and the word apostle means one who is sent, but he is sent with the ability to do that work too, miraculous ability. And then we see also that they were really the foundation of the early church. Ephesians 2, chapter 20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, those would be New Testament prophets and apostles and Christ himself being the, the chief cornerstone. So that was another qualification we see later of the apostles. And then their names are also mentioned in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Their names are mentioned engraved on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. So they have a unique place. There are no more apostles beyond them. And you say, well, what about Matthias? And what about the apostle Paul? Is there another 
apostle, the 13th one there? Well, the scripture doesn't give us much um, light on that. And um, evidently, his name may not be on those stones. But he seems to have had a unique apostleship different from the others because his was to the Gentiles. His ministry was to the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. While the others were largely going to the Jews and they had a hard time reaching the Jews, they were a very, very hard nut to crack. And so we see Peter leading that and he's leading the list of the 12 and it seems to me it might be something to do with that. Other than that, we have to leave it in God's hands to explain, us, explain it to us when we get to heaven. Now there's a second thing you can see here this morning in verses 8 and 9. He sent them to travel light. He sent them to travel light. I don't know if you've had problems traveling and going on the airplane. And you know right away if you put too much in your bag, which is usually when you get ready to check in. You know you probably got too much and you have to take some stuff out. And we've, we've learned to not do that over a few years of traveling, so we just carry a backpack and a, a necessary pack on the side for the computer. You've got to have a computer, of course, you know, today. And uh, that pretty much gets us through. But we don't carry any baggage that you have to check. And the, the apostles were not going to be checking any baggage when they went out either because it says, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. This is a list of what not to bring, isn't it? Um, Rick Steves got one of those. By the way, if you have problems with that, you ought to check him out. He's got a list for every country to go to and tells you what not to bring and what to bring. But notice what he says. He charged them. Christ has given them clear instructions before they left to not take anything for their journey except a staff. It's a word <laughs> that means a rod, a cane, a scepter, like a big stick, um, something like that, the, the, the staff that they would use to, to bring the sheep in, that kind of thing, it can mean that. Now, if you were to look in Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 9, in that passage of Scripture, it's talking about the same time, and there it says that you are not to take a staff. So you have a conflict. One says, these two say, don't take it, and then, of course, Mark says, do take it. Keep in mind that Mark is the newspaper version of the gospel. He keeps things really short. He just talks about the absolute essentials. He's talking about a staff here that is really just a stick to walk with. But what I think the other gospels are talking about is just another translation of the same word. It can also refer uh, to something that you can defend yourself with, you know, against those who would, who would um, uh, injure you or animals and that kind of thing. And so he's, you don't need that kind of a stick, Jesus was saying, I think here. He says you just need something to help you walk because you're going to be walking and traveling together there, probably. You won't need to fend off wild animals and thieves. But he also says no bread. Don't take any bread along with you. Well, that's pretty hard. Um, I find I have to take bread even on the airplanes today because it's so meager most of the time what they give you. But, but he's saying here, trust God. When you get to where you're going, God will supply somehow or another. Be dependent upon God. Allow him to provide for you as needed. That's a hard thing to do in life when we have to change tracks sometimes. No bag, he says, no bag. Um, 
that would have been probably a beggar's bed if you look at the historical reference to what the five things were that they took. Bar Clay gives you a good picture of that. There's probably a beggar's bag, and what he's basically saying is when you go, you're not going to beg. You're going to depend upon God. You're not going to profit. You're not going to put money away that people give you to profit yourself. You are there to serve as a servant and to do ministry. That's the way our attitude should be about life when we not just serve the Lord, but we serve others by serving the Lord, is to not profit from them, but to help them and to serve them. Because Christ came to serve us, and we come to the Lord's table today with that in mind too. And also he says, no money in their belts. They did have a special bag for that, and they did have a bag that they kind of carried inside with a strap around them that was sort of hidden. But he's saying, trust God. Trust God. You don't have to take any, your, your Visa card along, your MasterCard, whatever. You're just going to trust God and live by faith. <clears throat> so they would go out two by twos. And it says in verse 9, they but were to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So they were wearing sandals and um, simple walking gear. Probably just one of them, I think, probably there. And they put on two tunics. Now the tunic was kind of a, was a, an outer garment. There, there, excuse me, an inner garment was the tunic. And then there were outer garments that were more like a cloak that could be covered up at night. But he doesn't mention that. He only mentions the tunic. But he says, don't take two tunics. Just take one. In other words, you can't have two, throw one in the washing machine while you're wearing the other, basically, there. So that's the way they were to go with sandals, normal footwear here, and one tunic. Sandals were leather, sometimes wood. They weren't easy to walk with. We would find that. But they were the basics. And they would last for the kind of traveling they're going to do because these are short-term kind of things. You know, this strangely sounds like the book of Exodus, doesn't it? It strangely sounds like when the Jews left Egypt and God told them to pack up and Moses led them and they went across the the sea, the Red Sea, as it parted, they, they were to take just the basics. They couldn't take everything. They did take some of the things that were the Egyptians, but they couldn't take everything because they were in a hurry. It sounds strangely like that, it said, because, because they were going to establish now a country, Israel. They were going to be their own people. They had grown to that place while they were in Egypt, and now they were going to be journeying in the desert to the land of the promised land. Is it not a little bit like that with the disciples now who are now apostles as they go out with just the basics, traveling with the basics? And as they go, the church is being established soon in all of this too. There's a kind of an interesting parallel that seems to be going on there. But I think, in general speaking, we need to think about traveling light, don't we? My good friend, who was um, probably a mentor to me in some ways, a pastor, started a number of pastors, number of churches in the Northwest, and helped a lot of us younger pastors when we were starting. His name is George Cox. A few of you might know of him. He passed away recently. I went to his funeral last year. 
And that was the theme of his funeral. His kids said his theme was travel light, and he was. He went from this place to Port Angeles to, to up by Seattle, starting churches around the Northwest. He traveled light, and that was the theme of his life. And he didn't make any bones about it either. <laughs> In fact, he was so straightforward about things, his kids, I believe, this may be true, not just a joke, but on their tombstone, they put what he suggested. They, they put on the tombstone, one word, goodbye. He was out of there. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Wasn't anything sentimental. He was going to heaven. <laughs> that was George, if you knew him. He, uh, he chaired my uh, ordination. It was a wonderful thing, and I, and I thank him for it because he probably saved my neck, too. <laughs> so uh, think about traveling light in this life because often we have so many things, especially in America, that we can't go anywhere. We can't do any ministry because we have too much material things or other plans to take care of. Travel light. Thirdly, here in verses 10 11, verses 10 11, we see that they were sent to people who may not listen. Kind of reminds you of Isaiah the prophet who was told something similar to that. In verse 10, it says, He said to them, Wherever, whenever, excuse me, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart. From there. In other words, you might gonna, you're going to go to houses. You're not going to have a place to sleep, and God will provide it along the way. But if you go to a house and people are willing to accept you, they'll probably invite you in and you will stay there. And um, it's okay. Whenever you enter the house, stay there. Don't go from house to house trying to, trying to appear like you're getting money for the kinds of things they could do because they had the ability and the power to do miracles. But just stay in one place. Stay in one place. Come as servants, not as honored guests, not as honored apostles. Come as humble servants. Humility is a thing that we probably all struggle with to some degree, I think, in life. And um, we need to be humble about those kinds of things, especially when we're in the presence of others who do not know Christ. Verse 11, it says that some of the people would listen, but some would not listen. In verse 11, it's talking about those. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, they're not going to receive you because they're not going to listen to you because they don't want to hear your message. They may have heard your message. Kind of like the people in Nazareth. In fact, Jesus may have had Nazareth in mind as he talked about this, as he was sending these guys out, and the difficulty he had there. In fact, it was just on the heels of being there. He says, if they won't listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust of your feet there as a testimony against them. Now, that was a practice that the Jews had that was pretty obvious, and that probably was on Jesus' mind as he left Nazareth because they more or less did not want to hear what he said, couldn't believe it, didn't accept it. So in a sense, he may have shook off the dust, but that was a very real picture. The rabbinic law, the rabbinic law, as a law of the rabbis taught, not things that are necessarily in Scripture there, that if a Jew was coming home from a Gentile country, you know, like Syria or Egypt or some other country, which would every country would be a Gentile country except Israel, if they were coming home from a Gentile country, they were, when they crossed the border into 
into Israel, they were to take their shoes off and they were to shake the dust off their feet so they wouldn't take any unclean Gentile dust with them in the land of Israel. It was a picture of that. So that's what he means when he says this. Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. So if they were to reject the apostles, what they were doing was rejecting Christ as well. You were in a Gentile house, they rejected you, or you were in a Jewish house and they rejected you and rejected your message. You were to shake the dust off their feet as well because it was almost like they were Gentiles because they had rejected the Messiah of Israel. In other words, Jews who rejected the gospel were considered almost like the Gentiles who had done that. That was a real, real, I wouldn't say slam, but real direct message to them. You might take a look at Luke 10. We're going to put it up on the screen for a minute. In Luke 10, it does talk about that similar topic there. And in verse 12, it says, and he's talking about them going to various cities there, and he's talking about that kind of thing those who protested. And then in verse 12 it says, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for the cities, that's wherever they preached, who did not accept them. And then he mentions in verse 3, woe to you Chorazin, and woe to you Bethsaida. These were cities in the area of Galilee. I've been to the remains of those cities. They were destroyed after Christ was there. And that was prophesied so. And he was saying, it will be woe to Chorazin and woe to Bethsaida. These were cities near where Jesus had his headquarters there. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre, excuse me, I've got to change my notes here, uh, and Sidon, by the way, those, those were cities of the coast. In ancient times were very wealthy cities of the coast, and they were considered very corrupt also which the miracles occurred in, if those miracles would have occurred in Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So what he's saying is, Sodom and Gomorrah, they are, they were the epitome of evil and corruption, and immorality and homosexuality, very clearly there in Sodom and Gomorrah. And, um, God destroyed that place with fire. You can't even find it today. We know roughly where it is, but you can't even find it. It was destroyed. But he, but he says, if God would have done his miracles there, it's going to be worse for you who are in the area of Galilee where Jesus himself preached and the apostles preached. Be, be worse for you than it was for Sodom and Gomorrah or it was for Tyre and Sidon on the coast. It's a very, very serious thing to think about that. He's pointing out how terrible this fire was. In other words, Jews would incur a greater a judgment for them, even though they were the chosen people of God and even though they were there in the time of Christ, if they rejected Christ and if they were indifferent to him, their judgment would be far greater than even Sodom and Gomorrah. In light of America, where we've had the gospel a long time, and it's been preached far and wide. I wonder about the people in America today who are involved in sin. We have the gay revolution. That's a big one there. 
We have homosexuality, we have um, abortion, we have all those things. The judgment is going to be more difficult and more terrible in hell than for even Sodom and Gomorrah in those evil places. Well, Paul and Barnabas actually did shake their dust off their feet in one of their places they went to in the early part of the um, first missionary journey. Well, verse 12 and 13, as we close, verse 12 and 13, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. People should repent. What does it mean to repent? Uh, I think you should be aware of that, but just in case you're not, uh, it means to change your mind. It's a basic idea, but it means more than that. Of course, it's applied in lots of ways. It means to change your mind. This was, the, this was the message that John the Baptist preached. This was the message that Jesus preached. And that one word really sort of says it. You change your mind about God, for one. You change your mind about God and who he is and how powerful he is and his sovereignty and, and his authority over things. You change your mind about your own sin. Your sin is serious. It's not something you can dismiss. It's wrong. It's damning. And it will send you to hell without ever possibility of being relieved from that unless you change your mind about your sin and see it the way God sees it. You will change your mind about the Messiah, Christ, that he is the one who died on the cross. And unless you confess him as your Lord and Savior, you will be lost also. And you will also change your mind about your life direction. You will turn around. That's part of the idea of that. It's a turn around also, changing your mind. And the idea is that there's going to be fruit from your life. It's going to look different after you come to Christ. It won't look the same anymore. So repentance was the message that they were to proclaim. It could be spelled out in many different ways. And God would provide for them along the way. I don't know if you've heard the story about the two young guys who went out one day. They were on a mission to go somewhere. They were supposed to go and preach to a, a little town nearby. And they were walking along, and these young guys, and one guy was asking the other, said, oh, um, are, are you going to preach today, or what are you preaching on? And the guy says, I don't know. I've never preached. He says, Aren't you preaching? And the other guy says, well, um, no, I don't have a sermon. I don't preach either. So they talk back and forth, and finally the one guy, the first guy, then he says, well, I guess, okay, I'll preach. So he preached. And you know what his name was? Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> and he became perhaps what is often called the greatest preacher that has ever lived in recent centuries. Well, God provides along the way. He never had an education. These disciples didn't have an education. They'd had no they had no higher learning, really. They were just ordinary, 12 ordinary men. 12 ordinary men. I love that. Um, they were to cast out demons, and they were to anoint with oil, and many who were sick, and people would find deliverance from demons. That was the first thing mentioned there again in verse 13. And they would be able to heal people. They had that power, and they had that authority. And so Hebrews 2 tells us very clearly for the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken to us through the Lord, that would be Christ, 
it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, according to God's will. So they cast out demons. They couldn't do that before. That was a really hard one. They tried that. Didn't work out too well earlier. They anointed people and they would be healed, which they couldn't do really before. And uh, all kinds of miraculous things were given to them and the power to do. Why? So that the message of repentance would be verified and authorized in a sense. It was the same thing for Christ. His miracles authorized the truth that he was the Messiah and now they were his, um, they were his emissaries and the miracles they could do would authorize that for the period they were on earth. But keep in mind that was only for a short period of time because by the end of their lives they could no longer do that and they all died martyrs' death, save one. Well, as you look at this, once again, just a reminder, who were these guys? First of all, they were men. They were men. God created men. God is the Father. Jesus was a man, and he was the leader of them, the leader of the church, and these were men who were to be the foundation of the church, and so men in the church today are to be the leaders also, elders. We can go over that another time. Secondly, they were not wise. They were not educated. They were not influential. They were not wealthy. They took nothing with them, basically, when they went out. They were just 12 regular, ordinary men. If you look at their occupations, if you can even determine what they all were, we're not absolutely sure what they all did. About seven maybe were fishermen. I'm nothing against fishermen, but fishermen are not known for high education necessarily. Um, Peter, James, son of Zebedee and Andrew and so forth. Um, Andrew and James were called the sons of thunder. They seem to have had some kind of uh, explosive uh, problems and tolerant and so forth and um, self full of self-ambition but they were being changed as they moved along then they had of course they had tax gatherer that was a publican that was a Matthew and um, he was known for selling out to Rome those are the kind of guys that Jesus picked fishermen ordinary guys like that sons of thunder and um, named also Levi. Edersheim says the Jewish historian says that Jewish publicans, that would be the tax gatherers, were so hated that they were banned from the synagogues and were ranked with pigs and robbers. That's the kind of people that Jesus picked. And also associated with murders. By the way, speaking of that, he also chose a zealot kind of a terrorist or assassin who was out to kill anybody who was against Israel and for Rome. Not nice guys. There was a doubter too. That was Thomas. And then, of course, we have Judas. So they were just ordinary guys, but they were guys who God, none of them had an education. None of them were from the aristocracy. None of them were from Jerusalem. None of them were from any of those areas. But now they would be apostles and they would give their lives. Mostly fishermen who cast their nets, now they would be casting their nets for souls in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table as we think about what Christ did because as he handed this over to them, 
And as our guys come to prepare the table, as he, as um, Jesus handed over the responsibility of all of this to these guys, he's still training them. They're going out two by two. And they'll come back. We'll find that out later. They'll come back, and what they'll do when they come back is kind of explain to Jesus how it went, where they flubbed up. Jesus will give them more instruction later on. And then eventually they will be brave and prepared and ready and go out one by one. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded it's just a time to remember what Christ has done for us. He is preparing us for a ministry. I believe he's preparing our church for a greater ministry down the road here. And um, that's so that we might see more people trained to do the ministry of the word in various ways. As the Lord's table, uh, the juice, of course, represents Christ's blood, the bread, represents his body as it comes around you may take it and then take some time to think about where you are in all of this as we talked about these disciples and their sending this morning we are sent by the great commission we don't have apostolic authority but we do have the message of repentance to share to people we may not be in a pulpit like these guys would sort of be we may not be called to full-time ministry we're all called to ministry it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He would die on the cross to provide for our salvation. The message of repentance would point to that. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming back someday. He's coming back. And we want to be ready for him. We want to be task-oriented to carry out the Great Commission as the disciples were an example to us. Let us pray and thank the Lord for these elements, and as they come out, you may partake of these whenever you get them. If you want to take time to meditate on the scriptures just a little bit in the music, uh, feel free to do that, but it's on your own there. Father, we do thank you for your grace, and we do thank you for these 12 ordinary guys, ruffians, fishermen, zealots, tax gatherers, uh, people who would not be who we would choose, not be who the world would choose, seemingly no education, but they would be educated by the master himself. And they would go out and turn the world right side up. The biggest movement in all of history was started by these guys as Christ turned them loose. May that be the case with us also, and as we think about the Lord's table, it's all because you died on the cross for us and rose from the grave. What a blessing it is to have that heritage and to know that truth and to know that we can be forgiven and that our sins are wiped away by faith through Christ what he has done for us on that cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.